on 89.9 The Light. You're in conversation with Clayton, and it is just wonderful as we head in to the whole sporting summer, uh, especially as the cricket's uh, kicking off this week as well, to have a chat to a man who has played a big role in cricket. Henry Alonga joins us. G'day, Henry. Hey, Clayton. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Look, I'm doing really well, thank you, and uh, absolutely uh, just super excited to tell your story because there's so many different facets of it, Henry, uh, from being the first um, black cricketer to represent Zimbabwe, the youngest ever, and one of the first to be uh, kicked out of the team as well and, and kicked out of the country for some very good reasons. And there's a whole lot more of your journey too. Let's start by uh, your love of cricket. Where did that actually occur? Was that something always as you grew up? Well, it started in Zimbabwe. Um, I, I was actually born in Zambia, lived in Kenya for a few years. Then my parents split up when I was about four or five, and then we moved uh, to Zimbabwe from Nairobi, Kenya. And it was there that I got sent to boarding school at the age of about eight, a school called Rhodes Estate Preparatory School. It was a great colonial-type school. It had uh, a great education system, of course, and it had lots of ex- extracurricular activities. We're talking sport, we're talking drama, you, the various clubs you could join. And I discovered cricket when a man called Bob Blair came out. Bob Blair was a former New Zealand international. He'd played t- test cricket for New Zealand, oh, I couldn't tell you when, but you know, a few decades ago. And he had since retired and he was traveling around the world and certainly came to Zimbabwe, to my school, to show us the rudimentary skills of cricket. So I, I was taught how to pick up a cricket bat and how to hold a ball and I guess that piqued my interest, and uh, I then started playing for the young sort of representative teams like the Colts, and then moved up um, all the way to the final year of of junior school uh, in which I played for the national side. So I got picked for the under-12s team uh, in, uh, well, gosh, 88, I think it was. And then I went to high school and kept playing cricket just like it was any other sport. I loved my rugby. I loved my track and field athletics. I was also involved in tennis and soccer. Um, But cricket really came to the fore in my last couple of years of of high school, uh, in which I was picked to play for the the state side. We call them provinces there, but I played for the state side as a 17 and 18-year-old. And I guess it was there that I was spotted as a potential for international honours. And I, I was playing against, in the state competition, I was playing against national players, and they were really impressed with my speed um, because I was very fast. I was highly inaccurate, but I was very, very (laughs) fast. So... So they saw the potential, and uh, and I made my debut uh, in '95 against Pakistan. Yeah, um, it, it's remarkable, you know, to be able to to follow a, a journey like that. You, you you're playing cricket, you're then representing uh, Zimbabwe, and the World Cup came to Africa as well, including uh, some various games that in Zimbabwe too. That must have been as you started planning for that from a cricket point of view, quite thrilling. It certainly was. I, I'd been involved in the World Cup, which was in 99 uh, in England. And of course, Australia won that one. And so in 2003, when the World Cup came to Africa, because it wasn't just played in South Africa, they were the main hosts, but it was also played in Kenya and in Zimbabwe as well. So it was a real thrill. Uh, and uh, of course, Australia won that one as well. <laughs> and the next one. So, so uh, it, was, it, was, it was interesting. Uh, you know, it was a real thrill to play in front of our home crowd. But of course, the 2003 World Cup was my last um, uh, appearance as an international. It, it was also the World Cup in which I did a political protest against uh, the dictator, Robert Mugabe, which ended my 
career in Zimbabwe and indeed my life in Zimbabwe. So I had to go into exile after doing a political protest, yeah. which yeah. is uh, commonly called the black armband protest. Yeah. So maybe just explain what that was. You, you, you had a black armband on and it was in essence to sort of, I think it was the right phrase, sort of the death of democracy in, in or the demise of democracy in Zimbabwe. And you just wore that onto the field. Was that the idea? That was the idea. Um, a little bit of background about Robert Mugabe. By by uh, 2003, he'd been in power for uh, 23 years. And during his tenure as leader of the country, he'd done some terrible things. Um, he'd uh, m- murdered people. Uh, he'd had people thrown in prison on spurious charges if they were political opponents. Um, various human rights abuses and violations along the way as well, using food as a political weapon. There are many things he did. Um, and this young man... Gosh, I was in my mid-20s at the time, I think, um, had started to ask questions about whether this was right and and, uh, whether Mugabe indeed was a tyrant. I think if you'd asked me, you know, four or five years prior to that, whether uh, Mugabe was a dictator, I would have said, I would have laughed you out of the the room. I I didn't think he was a bad guy at all. I thought he was a really heroic leader. He'd fought against white minority rule in the 70s and, in fact, earlier in the 60s and 70s because... Zimbabwe was very similar to um, South Africa. We had uh, uh, segregation, which was similar to apartheid. It wasn't exactly the same, but it was similar. And Robert Mugabe was one of the people that fought against that. But of course, when he took to power, um, he committed atrocities. But those atrocities didn't come to light until a thing called the Internet was was Mm. born and people started sharing their stories. And I guess I I had an awakening, if you will, a a re-education as to what I was taught about him and all of that put together, and myself and Andrew Flower, a, f- a colleague in the cricket team, got together and decided we wanted to protest in a way that would allow our voices to be heard, but not just for us, because we were kind of living good, cushy lives. We were middle-class cricket players, but we were doing it for the people of Zimbabwe who we felt didn't have a voice. And so, yes, we we didn't call it the death of democracy protest, but of course, we wrote a statement in which we mentioned that we were mourning the death of democracy. So... Uh, coupled the statement with the black armband, and uh, it, it was a powerful statement which resonated around the world, at least in most freedom-loving countries. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it resulted in, in death threats coming my way, which meant I had to flee into exile. And I guess it was maybe a couple of months after that World Cup, um, I ended up in England and started a new life. But yeah. uh, it all happened very quickly. I'd reckon. Uh, did you, as you went into that, um, and you know, it was very, very poignant with one black and one white man uh, doing this together and, and talking about it in that regards. Was, did you realise this was going to be the end of your cricket? Uh, did you realise that it meant that you might not be able to go back to your own country? Like, did, was, Were those things that you'd actually worked through, look, this is probably what will happen, or was it more around the idea of, well, I, I'm, I'm going to do this because it's the right thing to do and whatever happens, happens? Well, we were well informed. We asked all the important questions. We were briefed. We met with various uh, people who were involved in the intelligence services in Zimbabwe, and they all advised us not to do it. They told us, we're nuts, we're crazy. What are you guys doing? It's going to be the end of your lives, as you know them. You know? So, but we were, look, we were so committed and so gung-ho about it and, and just filled with the uh, idea that this was a, a righteous cause um, that we saw it through. Um, but we were well-versed in the consequences. Uh, we weren't naive. We, I, I guess in one sense, we hoped it wouldn't, get to where it did um but we were warned that we might have to pay the ultimate price which is is death i guess um but it was very clear to us we could 
end our careers uh, and have to go into exile. So, well, either it was brave or foolish. I'm not sure which, <laughs> but uh, we, we stuck to our guns and we saw it through. Yeah. Well, part of uh, living in, in exile then, and as you said, into to the UK and meeting various people in different places, you actually uh, met your wife as you ended up then travelling in other parts uh, other than Zimbabwe, right? Well, yes. Well, what we didn't mention was at the start of my career, I, 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 I had a very dodgy action, shall we say. So I used to... I used to bowl with a bent elbow. <laughs> so, um, and that happened in my, on, on debut as well. So when I played Pakistan in that first cricket match in 95, um, I was called for throwing. So I needed to address this, or at least the cricket authorities thankfully felt they wanted to support me in fixing it. So they sent me all over the world. I went to India in 95. I worked with Joel Garner and Dennis Lilly there at the MRF Pace Foundation. And then I got sent here in 96 to Adelaide. Um, and on that trip, I, I met my wife, Tara, uh, and we got married much later, you know, eight or so years later, um, after the dust had settled. But we'd, we'd become friends during that period of time. And I also went to South Africa um, to work in my bowling there as well. So it, it was really fortuitous that I bumped into her at a social gathering. Um, I think her church were putting on uh, some youth meeting and she was a youth leader and, and we, we sort of got talking because no one else wanted to talk to me. None of the other yeah. kids wanted to because I was the strange kid who just rocked up. I looked different to them and I found myself sitting alone at the edge of a table and she came and chatted and that really sparked it all off and of course, uh, yeah, we got married in 2004 and then uh, spent some time in England, started a family. We've got two daughters, Felika and Liana and uh, in 2015 we decided to emigrate from England to uh this country. I, I, I always joke that my wife came to me and said to me that she found England wet, miserable, cold and depressing. Uh, and she was talking about the people, not the weather. So, <laughs> um, so, so we, we came over here. We, 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 we really loved it. We really utterly loved it. Yeah. And uh, it was my understanding that actually for a while, with even with your passports and, you know, you'd officially, um, you know, the, ran out as effectively as a passport for for Zimbabwe. You couldn't even travel out of England for a time. Am I am I reading right of what occurred there for you as well? Yes, that's correct, Clayton. Um, so in 2006, my Zimbabwean passport expired. And uh, by this stage, the Zimbabwean government were, were, were pushing to try and ostracize people who they felt were likely to vote against Mugabe. So they made it very hard to either maintain your citizenship or to renew a passport. And you had to prove all sorts of things. You had to prove that you weren't going to claim citizenship of another country. So, for example, because I was born in Zambia, I had to renounce my Zambian citizenship before they would renew my my Zimbabwean passport. Now, I'd done that in Zimbabwe, but come 2006, um, I went to the High Commission or the Embassy or whatever it was called, and uh, I was given a long list of things I needed to do, and one of them was to return to Zimbabwe to get my passport renewed, mm. which made no sense to me. <laughs> so, uh, that meant I was landlocked, if you will, in the UK for crumbs, another nine years. I couldn't, I couldn't travel outside the England or uh, the United Kingdom. So I could travel to Ireland and Scotland and Wales and England, but I couldn't really travel to Europe or elsewhere in the world. And that was a trying time for me, but I got busy. You know, I wasn't one of those people who was going to sit around and mope about my situation. So I got busy. I got on the speaking circuit. I got singing. Um, and, and I just got stuck into things that I've always loved doing in my life. I got stuck into art and 
eventually I became a British citizen and I was able to travel. So yeah. that enabled us to, to emigrate, of course. Wonderful. Uh, we're going to be back with Henry Alonga in a couple of moments' time as we explore a bit more of this, um, well, almost the second innings of his life, to use a, a pretty obvious cricket pun. But uh, of the, the I- Yeah, that's right. Yes, thank you. Uh, of uh, the ideas around art and singing and, and these things. And also want to talk specifically to Henry about his Christian faith and how that has played uh, for him in the various aspects of his life. What impact has it done? Uh, what has it asked questions of as he's gone about his life as well? That's on the way next here on 89.9 The Light. In conversation with Clayton. On 89.9 The Light, you're in conversation with Clayton. And it's a, a thrill, especially ahead of um, the, the Ashes coming up to be talking cricket. Boy, you know, I, I try and make sure I restrain myself and not talk too much cricket on this show. But uh, wonderful to have Henry Alonga with us. Uh, he represented Zimbabwe, as we've been hearing as well. Uh, the first black cricketer, the youngest ever to represent Zimbabwe, uh, following his black arm protest about Robert Mugabe, got exiled from Zimbabwe and has now found himself in Australia, married to an, an Australian as well. And we've um, already talked a lot of that cricket stuff, Henry. So I, I do want to talk a bit about some other aspects of your life. Firstly, you have a very strong faith in Jesus. Uh, tell us where that started, and, and then we want to explore, I suppose, how, how that impacted you in various aspects of your life. Well, I think it all began when I was young. I mean, uh, my mom was a rather pious woman. She, um, By the way, my parents split up um, and lived in separate parts of the country when I was a young boy. Mm. And so I'd have to go to, the, to my mom's for, for the holidays, and, and our School term is slightly different to yours here. We have three terms in the year. So the year's kind of divided into uh, three blocks of four months. And so long story short, during the holidays, I'd go to mom's and she would send us off to, to, to chapel or church. Um, and at school as well, um, we had uh, compulsory chapel services every Sunday. And um, I was a boarder for all of my schooling from the age of eight. So, you know, you add up all those Sundays I went to school during the school terms and that's a lot of opportunities to hear about uh, the idea of where we came from as human beings. Mm. And uh, long story short, I've always admired um, the creation. And I think from a, even from a young age, I was always befuddled by the idea that we could have come from nothing. You know what I mean? I just thought, yeah. nah, there's got to be a great designer or force or intelligence behind uh, man's existence. And, uh, you know, it, it, things came to a head, I suppose, when I went to high school and I started being challenged with two different worldviews uh, because my school kind of did that to me. So yeah. on Monday I hear about evolution and, you know, molecules to man and from the goo to the zoo to you and all that stuff. Here we are, we're highly evolved pond scum. And then on Sunday I'd hear actually there's a God, he made the world and uh, he made human beings in his image, etc., etc. And I don't know about you, but if you're listening to two conflicting messages, it, it kind of leads to a confusion. And I, I wasn't really sure who was telling me the truth, my, my preacher on Sunday or, or my teacher on Monday. And so it led to uh, a subtle crisis of belief, if you will. Which one do I believe? Who's telling me the truth, etc.? I'm asking questions. And it all came to a head when I was 16 and I went to a Christian youth camp. Um, I, I guess the fact that I went to a Christian youth camp already means that I was starting to consider the idea that uh, this creator uh, might be interested in getting me to know him. And so a lot of friends of mine had gone on these camps and said they were fun mm. and they loved it. And, uh, they'd had, uh, really life changing experiences there. And so I eventually 
encouraged my dad to let me go. It cost some money. I think it was $250 back then, but he fronted up the money and I went and had a blast. And I went, I think I went to two on, uh, overall. And on the, on the first one, I think I was confronted with, I guess what Christians would call the gospel message, the good news that actually God uh, is real. He did make the world. And as the leader or sovereign of the world, he, uh, has made some rules, <laughs> and uh, some of those rules are quite uh, obvious, and some are not. But uh, for people who don't understand, uh, God is is righteous, and He's a just judge, and He will judge uh, the world. He'll judge everyone for the way they've lived, the decisions they made, the choices they made, the way they treated other people, etc. And there are two destinations uh, that are available to human beings: you can either go to heaven or you can go to the other place. <laughs> mm. And uh, the other place isn't too pleasant, apparently. So. I was confronted with that heaven and hell message. And yes, it's scary if you don't know God, um, but it's amazing if you do. And so this gentleman who shared the message with us at the youth camp basically put it to us that all of us are disqualified from going to heaven. We've all sinned. I think it's from the book of Romans, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, it says. And there's a punishment for that. Uh, and the punishment is eternal separation from God and punishment. And uh, Guess what? I, if I was given the choice of not getting punishment <laughs> and receiving eternal life, as the Bible claims, I thought, well, why wouldn't I? So I, I had a conversion experience, basically, when I was 16. I think it was just before Christmas as well, the 17th of December. And I, I just decided to believe and trust uh, that a man called Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth, uh, born in a manger, uh, lived a sinless life, and... Uh, ultimately went to die a cruel cross, death, uh, at the hands of the Romans uh, to allow us to have our sins forgiven. So there's a, that's kind of an exchange. Imagine uh, you're in a court of law and you have to pay a fine, you can't afford it, and someone comes up and says, well, I'll pay the fine for you. Kind of similar to that. Mm. And long story short, I got, the, I got the concept. I got the idea that there is a God. He loves me. He wants me. But he leaves it up to me to determine whether I want him. He gives us that freedom to choose. Uh, and a long story short, that was when I was 16. I'm now 45. Uh, it has an immediate impact on my life in that I, I guess you could say that I had the assurance that if I died at any point from then on, I would know where I was going. And I, I would imagine that's a scary thought mm. for people who don't consider these things. Like, like, what if you die? Let's say here you are. You're plodding along with your life. You believe in Darwinian evolution. You're an atheist and you die and you get to the other side and you discover actually the story about Jesus was true. I mean, that has all sorts of implications. Yeah. It fills you with dread. It fills you with fear. Um, but conversely, if you have placed your trust in Jesus, and let's be fair, I've never seen him. I can't prove to anyone he exists. I just trust what's written in a, a book, the Holy Scriptures, the Bible that God has handed down to people. And it's that placing my faith that the story is true, placing my faith in God that he hasn't lied to me, that uh, everything there is is trustworthy. Uh, he apparently loves that, and he, he calls that righteousness. If you trust in him, he calls that righteousness. And yeah. that earns you eternal life. When I say earns, I've used the wrong word. And that gains you eternal life. We can't yes. earn it. It's a gift. Um, and uh, so I did that. And uh, as I said, one of the primary benefits was the loss of the fear of death. Uh, which is a powerful thing. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, right now our world is surrounded by the concept of the fear of death. Um, and there's a lot of 
people who I hope will be looking at spirituality from a different vantage point because uh, death is, is, is always nearby. Any of us could die at any point, uh, unexpectedly. You could die in a car crash. You could choke on your food. I mean, there's all sorts of ways you can die suddenly. But to have that assurance that if you died, you knew where you were going on the other side in the afterlife, I think that's a tremendous thing. And, and, and on top of that, of course, having your sins forgiven, being at peace with God, yeah. uh, possibly being reunited with people who've gone before you who did the same thing. That's a tremendous promise. And so that's what I did. I was a young boy over my life. Uh, my 20, 30 years of, of faith in God, of course, I've uh, come to find that God has been faithful in answering prayers in times of need. Uh, we don't have time to go into this, but during the Black Armband protest, when I found myself abandoned by other people, there were other people um, who came and uh, gave me miraculous provision. I was broke. I needed money for an air ticket. I thought in my heart, wouldn't it be nice if someone gave me a ticket? And lo and behold, someone gave me a ticket. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have been many cases of divine intervention in my life. Now, I, I'm not going to suggest it looked miraculous. If, if you looked at it from the outside, you'd think, oh, that was just coincidental. But I've had so many coincidences when I've had a need and I've prayed to God and he's met it, that I'm convinced that God is real. Yeah. And so that's my journey of faith. I mean, that's simply put. I, as a young boy, decided to place my faith in yeah an invisible God who's made a promise that if you trust him with your eternity, he will honor that by giving you eternal life. And so uh, I commend it to everyone, especially those of you who've no idea where on the fence you sit. Mm. Um, and and the, the one challenge I always give to people is, is this. We, we, we sometimes suspend our logic when we think about spirituality. But here's how human beings think. When we see a building, we know there must be a builder behind it. Yeah. When we see an airplane, we know there must be uh, an aeroplane maker behind it. Same thing with a car. Whatever you can think of that's sophisticated and complex, we know that nature doesn't put those things on its own together. Uh, and it's incredible, isn't it, that the universe at large is infinitely more complex than a building or a plane or a car. Yeah. And a lot of people just draw the conclusion that, oh, no, it made itself. So <laughs> I just was never able to reconcile that. Yeah. And so I believe... And challenge people to, to to question a little further about how we got to be here. Yeah, I love love hearing your story. Thank you so much for sharing, Henry. Um, along the way, uh, this sort of second arm of art has been a big thing for you. The arts, I mean, uh, I know there's yeah. art as part of that. There's photography part of that. There's certainly singing a part of that. I think you know, even recently, you you're in the voice as well here in Australia. It's quite remarkable. You're, you're your love of singing and these things. Where does all that come from? Is that something that was um, always uh, also a part of who you were, or is that something that you've been able to explore now that cricket's perhaps not quite as much of a focus? Um, well, when I was a young boy, I I, I loved my, my drama and, and singing. I was in the choir in high school uh, every term uh, of every year. So um, from the age of 13 to 18, um, I took part in the choir. I took part in all the plays. I was uh, picked as a girl in my first play <laughs> in, in high school, as a girl in Oklahoma. Um, I didn't know that in a boys-only uh, school, you have to find the girls from yep, somewhere. Yep. And so I was foolish enough to audition. <laughs> and uh, I was actually called the ugliest girl they'd ever had on any, <laughs> any play. So uh, <laughs> uh, in any case, I I just loved, I loved being on stage. In fact, towards the end of my uh, education in my final year, I got auditioned by a scout from the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art, and he loved my voice. I think I sung a song, I think it was The Holy City, 
um, and he loved my voice, and it was, he offered me a scholarship uh, to Lambda. And unfortunately, within three or four months of that audition, although, of course, I would have to take them up on the offer, um, I was picked to play test cricket for Zimbabwe. So my life veered off in a different direction for a number of uh, decades, perhaps. Uh, and then when I retired from cricket after that black armband protest, I found myself thinking, what do I do next? I tried cricket commentary. I enjoyed one season of doing that in England. But I really discovered it wasn't my thing. I, 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 it's very intimidating doing commentary with someone like Richie Benno or Michael Slater or, yeah. or Mark Nicholas. They've, they're very, very uh, uh, learned uh, commentators. They know the history of the game. I'm not saying I don't, but I don't, I don't really have a grasp like they did. And so I thought, well, what else could I do? And I thought, well, let me go back to all the things I loved in school. And I discovered, rediscovered my love for painting um, and also singing. So, and ultimately what happened was I got an agent in the UK who said, um, people want to hear your story. Would you be willing to sign up with us and we'll get you out there, we'll get you work? And I sort of said, yeah, sure. And so over time, of course, I had to develop my my, my act or my offering, yeah. if you will. And to start off with, it was all Mugabe, Mugabe, dictator, dictator, dark, dark stuff, <laughs> depressing uh, stuff. And then I started to inject a bit of humor. And then at some point, someone said, hey, I've heard you sing. Um, do you wanna, why don't you incorporate that into your, your speech? And so I did. And then I became known for it. And crumbs, what is it now? Almost uh, 17, 18 years later, I've sort of branched out into more and more performance. I, I, as you say, I had the privilege of being on The Voice in 2019. Um, I was lucky then after that season to perform with the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra and the police band here in South Australia and the army band and many others. Um, and of course it was all taking off until COVID hit us. And so everything's kind of gone on the back burner, but I'm still working on, on my music and my singing. I'm still, um, still recording albums and trying to get them out and uh, working on art when I get the inspiration. My art is probably the one thing that I seldom do, but I really have loved the recreational side of life, seeing as uh, retirement from cricket meant I had to find something else. And the funny thing is all these things have sort of blended into kind of recreational career yeah. uh, uh, options. Um, so I sing a little bit for pleasure, but I also sing to get paid. Yeah. Uh, same with the young. Yeah, I love it. Absolutely love it. Well, look, I, I think, you know, at any point, just, just um, you know, Google Henry Alonga and you can appreciate all of his uh, various aspects of, of who he is and the character and the, the fascinating life that he has led. Uh, we thank you again for your time, Henry. Just before we officially say thank you, if anything that you've heard from Henry has just um, caused you to ask some more questions, especially about that faith stuff or uh, the, the creation of the world and, and a God who loves us and actually wants to care for us, would would you ring our care line? If you've got no one else to talk to, to chat through that, well, that's why the care line is there. Every single day of the year, 9583-2273, 9583-CARE, if you use the letter pad on your phone. Uh, they're there for you right now, ready to take your call. Henry, we do thank you for your time. Uh, thanks for uh, the journey and the life that you've lived and the, the sharing you've done with that. Uh, it's certainly inspirational uh, uh, to listen to, and we wish you all the best in the next season as well. Thanks again. Thanks, Clayton. Uh, can I just say, extend my... My love to the people of Victoria, because I know you guys have had it tough for the last few years, but we're, we're with you in spirit. Thank you so much. Henry Alonga, my guest here on 89.9 The Light.